Welcome, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, to um, this evening's LSC Works program. I am Dr. Alpa Shah. I'm in the Department of Anthropology um, here at the LSC. I'm an associate professor. Uh, I'm really pleased to um, welcome to the panel my own colleagues, uh, Professor Deborah James, who is also the Deputy Director of our department, who is the author of Money from Nothing, um, Indebtedness and Aspiration in South Africa. But today she's going to be speaking about advice uh, under UK austerity regimes. Um, I'm also pleased to welcome Laura Baer, who is Professor of Anthropology here at the LSC, uh, and the author of a recently published fantastic book, Navigating Austerity, of debt along the South Asian uh, River. And she's actually going to kick off our evening by presenting a film based on her book, uh, Currents of Debt uh, on the River. The river is the Hooghly River. Um, I'm also really pleased to welcome Ryan Davey, who's a postdoctoral fellow in our department and who has done some fantastic research on class uh, and social debt here in the UK. He's done um, really great ethnographic research on a housing estate. Um, uh, and then I'm equally delighted to welcome Fanny Mellinen, who is uh, a London-based independent journalist and part of a research and activist um, group called Debt Resistance UK, and Carl Packman, who is research and good practice manager at the wonderful Toynbee Hall. So this event is entitled Austerity Debt, What Alternatives? And it marks the seventh lecture in this LSC Works um, series, series, which is a kind of public event series, which is um, showcasing some of the latest research in the LSC uh, and presenting it in an accessible uh, manner to hopefully an audience which is also beyond the academic context. Um, so in each of these sessions, the LSE academics present key research findings demonstrating where appropriate the implications of their studies for public policy. Uh, and it's held every two years. Uh, a successful second series of LSE works was held in 2013 and continued with a third series in 2015. So we are in this year uh, continuing the success of the LSE works with a fourth series of public lectures. And the next lecture, in case you're interested, will be given by Eva Maria Bonin, David McDade, Professor Martin Knapp from LSE's Personal Social Service Research Unit entitled Promoting Mel Mental Health, the Economic Case. And that's on Wednesday, 8th of March at 6.30 p.m. here in the Hong Kong Theatre. So um, uh, I'm also asked to tell you that for those of you using Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is, hash, is hashtag LSE works. Uh, I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. This evening's event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast uh, uh, subject to no technical difficulties. So after the, after the session, the speakers are all going to present, and then there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. But for now, um, please join me in welcoming the panel um, to, to today's event. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and to our first speaker, uh, Professor Laura Baer, uh, who's going to show her film. My research took me to a place, the Hooghly River in Kolkata in West Bengal, 
There, the politics of austerity rolled out about 20 years earlier than they did here in the UK. So by looking at this place and the ways in which austerity began there and then affected people's livelihoods, we can reflect on our condition. It's a place that for this river, for 300 years or more, has been at the centre of global trade. And even some of the ships that were built on the Isle of Dogs in the 19th century now lie at the bottom of that river. Levels of trade have gone up since liberalisation in the 1990s. All of the very showy goods of globalisation that end up in the shopping malls of the city come up the river. It also represents to people who live along the banks the forces of fertility, in particular embodied in the form of the goddess Margonga. And yet this river has also become a ruined landscape as the austerity regime has meant that less and less investment has been made in the sort of infrastructure of the river, less and less investment in dredging the river. One of the most precarious and dangerous forms of livelihood on the river is the men who go out at low tide into the centre of the river. They uh, go out on small wooden boats um, and they climb out of the boats and stand up to their necks in the water and dig up sand from the bottom of the river and load up the boats and then bring them back at high tide. They described it as sort of putting themselves in the trust in the hands of Margonga that she could easily decide to end their life if they didn't treat her with respect. Well, state debt until about 20 years ago was a political relationship and worked according to political rhythms. So when the central government needed money to invest in infrastructure or the public sector, it would just create money with the central bank or borrow it from individual banks. And it would do that according to the rhythms of political decision-making. And then it would pass that debt down into the public sector as a political relationship. So those debts might not ever have to be repaid. But 20 years ago, that mechanism totally shifted. And what happened was governments started issuing state debt bonds to banks, which banks then issued into the financial markets to allow speculation on the back of. And it started out as a project within the World Bank, as it seemed to be a way of getting around the problem of third world debt crises. So it was seen as a way of productively drawing capital towards governments as a kind of magic solution, in a sense, for government debt. Now, that might not have seemed like a very big change, but it actually was a very big change because it meant that governments now had to look to the sentiments of the markets before they could think about their economic policies. They would have to think about, you know, if we, if we took a certain measure, would that cause the rates of borrowing to increase on the markets? And once they started to introduce these new financing mechanisms that were linked to the market for uh, government activity. It also meant that they started to treat all of the organisations under them, the public sector organisations, as if they had financial credit relationships with them. And they started to charge them interest on debt. They would never freeze debt if the organisations couldn't repay it. And hence you get what I, what I saw on the Hoogly. Um, we can also understand this as the origin of um, austerity policies in the UK and Europe as well. Although we think of liberalisation and globalisation in India as being a regime of opening up the economy to flows of capital and flows of goods 
Um, what it was, in fact, was the introduction of a regime of debt accounting within the public sector in which debts which had been accrued between the centre and um, institutions like the Port Trust were, had been political debts which would never have been repaid. They were just money, in a sense, given to the public sector in order to create productivity. But what had happened was these had been turned into financial debts and had to be repaid with interest, actually, just like financial debts suddenly. So that turned the port trust on the river into this kind of extractive machine. I'm not a politician, so my solutions are very utopian solutions and quite big solutions that are all about rebalancing that relationship between the financial markets and, and the government and governments across the world. The first of these would be the ending of derivative bonds and the creation of sovereign debt bonds within markets to end the government's reliance on these market cycles. They would also involve the opening up of central banks to democratic processes um, so that the effects of their central bank policies could be open to political discussion, so the creation of elected boards for central banks. They would also include perhaps the creation by the government of political kinds of debt bonds, which they would develop not with markets but with socially useful organisations, say universities, pension funds, whatever else, and they would get into debt relationships with these organisations with long-term perspectives rather than market organisations. There also needs to be, at the more kind of macro scale, a dissolving of the World Bank, the ending of a kind of jubilee of all of the debt relationships that the World Bank and I have had with international governments at the most utopian level. If we think back to the post-war period, what happened then was, for example, in the UK and other countries suffering from debt after the war, um, those debts were forgiven by banks or there was a creation of money by the government in order to invest in vital resources like the new growing National Health Service in the UK. And we can think of a possible return to those policies in the present. If we got rid of the marketization of sovereign debt, we could then the government then could in effect print its own money again. It could monetize and create its own resources and generate a national wealth fund which could then invest in particularly social useful, socially useful occupations and in the public sector itself without having marketized debt relationships intervene. But at the sort of more grassroots level, I think there needs to be sort of political movements built around the question of the public sector and what has happened to it and whether the forms of financing of the public sector are creating greater inequality or not um, and who they're producing profits for because of course the system as it exists now is producing extreme accumulation at the top of the system so that the financial sector is making money not only out of markets but out of public sector institutions. So that kind of politics would be the politics of organisations like Debt Resistance UK that are questioning the financialization of local authority government financing in the UK and are calling for social audits of local authorities. And in taking this perspective, I'm centrally guided by the perspective of, in particular, shipyard workers on the Hoogley River who really argued for 
the increase of forms of mutuality, forms of mutual support and, and recognition within the economy, so that even they, uh, sort of precarious workers, their role in the economy would be recognised. And they wanted, they called the economy that existed on the river um, a kind of immoral economy that was driven by the burning of the stomach or individualistic needs. And they argued instead for a kind of social calculus, a measure of e measuring of economic policy according to the effects that it had on everybody and whether those effects were equal or unequal. So there's a kind of philosophical orientation that I've learned from people on the Hooghly River that for them is influenced by Hindu ideas in particular and their sense of the fertility of the river Hooghly itself and the goddesses that, that are associated with her. Thank you. Um, my film, I hope, has taken you on a journey on the Hooghly River that has also helped you to understand a little bit more about sovereign debt. But we're not only talking about sovereign debt today, we're also talking about the growth of forms of personalised debt, uh, sort of credit relationships between uh, citizens and banks, and we're also talking about local authority debt. So I just wanted to take sort of maybe one minute to explain the connections between the new forms of personal credit that have emerged since the 1980s and the new forms of local authority credit that have emerged more recently and these forms of sovereign debt that I described in, in my film. Um, basically, what these forms of sovereign debt did, these marketized, financialized forms of sovereign debt did, was two things. First of all, they imposed an austerity regime within state institutions. Um, and they were all built on this idea that if the state held too much of the country's capital, that capital would be unproductive. And instead, the capital should go as much as possible within the financial markets and within the banking system in order to make the economy and society productive. So um, on the one hand, you got a kind of austerity regime within the state, and on the other hand, you got a massive pumping of capital into the banking system from, from when these uh, uh, debt bonds were set up. Um, and then the question is, what then happened to that capital that entered the banking system? It was then used to uh, build uh, kind of a kind of castles in the air of derivatives, which then produced more profits for the banking system. And then what the banks did with that capital to make it more productive was they started to invent new ways of lending to us, of extending credit to us. And they also invented new ways of lending to local authorities. And in particular, their lending in both of these domains was papering over some of the deepening inequalities and deepening problems in our societies. So on the one hand, their extension of credit to us covered up the declining real value of our wages since the 1980s. And they covered up the fact that uh, people at the bottom of the system who had been receiving welfare were now having to use credit and credit cards in a form of debt fare in order to support their livelihoods.
Um, on the other hand, the local authorities also ran into a series of problems you know, in the UK and across the world, which was as the governments instituted these often hidden austerity regimes behind the scenes, local authorities didn't have the resources to keep essential services going. So they then turned to the banks to borrow money at high rates of interest to keep those systems going. So for me, although we're talking about apparently very different issues, for me I see it as part of this kind of total network that was kind of set in play by this state starvation thesis, this idea that the state should have as little control of capital as possible and the markets and the banks, particularly the financial markets, should have as much control as they could. So thank you. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so that's a fantastic scene setting for what I'm going to do now, which is to home down into a very minute little set of face-to-face contacts. It's some research I've been doing, which I still haven't finished, and therefore very much research in progress and haven't <clears throat> been able to kind of give that bigger picture of the type that Laura's done, but luckily she's, she's given it for me, which is great. So um, austerity forms a backdrop to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these particular debt advice offices, just like Ryan and Carl will be as well, just in, in the same sense that Laura mentions, which is that at a certain moment there was a huge expansion of the possibility of borrowing, but suddenly it kind of cut back. And in addition, not only did, did um, sort of austerity regimes begin, but those austerity regimes in the case of, of um, England and the UK meant that the kind of advice that people used to have to get in order to get out of debt if they fell into problems and the kind of advice people used to need to seek help with their welfare issues was suddenly cut. So there was a huge kind of cutting back of, of money available to pay for these sorts of advisors. And it's an interesting paradox here because the central agency in, in the British state, the Department of Work and Pensions, is determined to cut down what it spends on people. But what I found in my research is that various loopholes are there. There are either mandatory, reconsider, mandatory reconsideration processes, appeal processes, various crisis funds or, or loans provided by councils. So there's always something that can be done to help the people who are suddenly you know, at, at the bottom of the pile and, and needing either running out of benefits or in arrears with rent or unable to pay their debts. <clears throat> and it's largely through the work of the advisors that I'm going to be describing here that these things all actually become possible. Um, interestingly enough, the funders who fund this advice, no longer the state but now various other kinds of funders, are in fact um, required to sort of demonstrate the value for money that they are giving and this means that advisors themselves often have to spend lo long time kind of filling things in on computers so there's more insistence than previously on proving the need for advice and its efficacy by the funders, but this is in a setting where it is more necessary than before to have advice, and yet the advice itself is in shorter supply. So there's a strange kind of meeting of supply with demand in a very kind of weird, distorted manner. But despite this audit regime and these austerity cuts, advice is still being given, and it takes a huge amount of effort to untangle people's um, complex circumstances. So this is just a photograph um, taken outside the Citizens Advice Bureau showing, you know, there's so many people arriving, so literally you have to come on a first-come, first-served basis. There's a huge amount of pressure on these 
kinds of agencies. Um, <coughs> this is just a sort of quote, which I won't read out to you, but it's a marvelous quote from a particular advisor, just showing the extraordinary kind of complex circumstances which any given advisor might have to untangle when faced with a client. In this case, it's a client who has been kind of uh, rejected by either the Job Center Plus or one of the um, welfare agencies, and the, the amount of telephoning that goes on and, and the, the extraordinary kind of level of input that these advisors have to give. And the point I'll be making, and I don't have a huge amount of time, but is that the type of advice that's needed here, some of it is called debt advice in the most kind of narrowly defined um, sense, in as much as it's about people who need help because they owe too much money to banks and formal creditors, interest-bearing credit of that sort. But many of them also owe money to the state. And the reason why they may owe money to the state is because of the regulation of certain agencies that used to stand between the, the kind of individual and the state. In other words, maybe five years ago you could borrow money from wonga.com and that would help you pay your council tax or your housing rental arrears. Now those, those things have been regulated, so now you've got to pay your money directly to um, whatever the lo lo local council. And the local council is thus in a state of sort of shock, as, as Laura was saying, and thus has to then borrow money, as we'll be hearing from Fanny in a minute. So the kind of work that does go on is no longer funded primarily by the state, but it is funded by what I call patchwork funding. People are forever having to, advisors or the people who run these bureaus, are forever ever having to sort of patch together little sources of funding into sort of patchwork quilts. So you'll find a particular project which can be for people from this area and it's specifically oriented around housing. Another project using five other sources of funding will be for this particular group of people and it will be to solve some other related problem. And this results in a strange kind of... Um, Patrick austerity, because instead of being a uniform blanket of austerity that has been cast down across the land, instead there are partial bits and pieces of austerity which in some cases are worse than in others. Okay, so I'm going to just select one particular example from each um, sector. And, and sorry, again, this is, a, this is another case to, to show you the kind of um, reliance, the huge reliance on people working in these advice offices, many of them not actually paid, many of them actually voluntary, but doing what, um, what, what we think of in anthropology as the work of care. It's not something that readily appears before the public gaze because we, we tend to think publicly only about what costs money. These are volunteers and they're, they're working often in charitable scenarios. But sometimes these people have to actually refer their work up to a specialist. So hence the quote from this woman here. Um, we are not specialists. I'm, I'm doing the kind of frontline work, but I'm going to have to refer my work to my, your question up one layer. So the interesting um, thing that goes on in these kinds of settings is that not only do people owe, as I said before, to creditors, and I'll get onto that in the second part of the talk, but also they owe money to the state because you might be in arrears for your council house. Um, there's a whole series of other things that you might owe to the state. But no, most notoriously what happens is that, that many people who are on benefits, not because they don't have a job, but rather because they have a job, maybe a zero-hours contract kind of job, but they don't really earn enough to kind of pay their rent, etc. They are actually getting paid certain amounts of money by the Inland Revenue Service. It's called um, working tax credits. It was a system devised by the Labour government in the 1990s. 
And so many people in these kind of circumstances find themselves suddenly having to repay vast amounts of money because they have been overpaid. It's one of the most terrible words. You'll, kind of, you'll, you'll hear it again and again in these kinds of advice offices. Somebody comes in, I've gotten a letter from the council, they say I've been overpaid housing benefit, and I've been another letter from the inland revenue, I've been overpaid £3,000 from the revenue service in working tax credits, what should I do? So um, in one case that I sat, that I sat in on um, at, at the CAB, this, this man came in, actually I won't, I won't go into that yet, a man came in and he was in a complete state of, of sort of shock because he'd received three different letters from the local authority who had been paying him housing benefits. The one wanted him to repay a whole lot of money. Why? Because his brother and family had moved in with the family for a short period of time. This then meant that he was no longer entitled to get the full whack of housing benefit. The second reason for the second invoice that, that was sort of leveled at him was for a second reason, which is that he'd been earning more money. He was a working person. He'd been earning more money than he had previously said. And the third one, again, also had to do with the fact that he'd earned more money than previously. Now, in two of these cases, he had proof that he had, in fact, told the authorities about the circumstance that his brother had moved in and that he had um, you know, earned a certain amount. In the third case, he had no proof. So the amazing work that this advisor was able to do was to sort of take a look at this incredible pile of paper and sort of sort it out very, very quickly. And she sort of calmed them down and said, that's what they always do. They wait until it all builds up, and then they send everything together. So don't panic. You still have to pay back, but don't worry. And she worked out. Invoice number one was all about bureaucratic error, so he was going to be able to challenge that. Invoices two and three would need to be repaid, but she referred him to a debt advisor who would make out a sort of repayment plan so he could pay off the money that he owed over a period of years. So... In this particular case, what might appear not really to be debt advice, because we're talking about money owed to the state, is still to some degree about debt, but in a very kind of peculiar um, and strange manner. So, but you, what you can see here is that a lot of effort and, and sort of care work is going in to the sort of advice um, given by these people. So the much more... The much more normal concept that we have when we think about debt advice is the advice that you get given when you are confronted with a loan shark. So, so if a certain person has found themselves you know, persuaded to go and borrow money from Wonga.com, which is the most notorious example of the payday lender, so in, in the kind of um, annals of the, um, the money advice service that I've been reading called Quarterly Account, you, at one point you find a lot of pictures like this. It was all warning people against borrowing money at high rates of interest. It'll cost you an arm and a leg and these frightening pictures of sharks. In fact, as I pointed out, these have been regulated so it's far more likely to find people owing money to their local authority than it is to find money owing money, um, money to, in huge amounts to, you know, to, to, to loan sharks because, as I said before, they've, they've been regulated. But in this kind of case as well, you'll find debt advisors giving extraordinarily careful attention to the situations involved and to the kind of plight of the indebted person and often able to really deliver very kind of calm and measured advice about what to do. Um, however, sometimes they find it extremely difficult to work out, much more difficult than they did in the case that I just described where it's mainly the issue of the council or the housing benefit office or so, something like that. And that's partly because 
Many of the debts that have been incurred, let's say in this case to NatWest, have already been sold on multiple times. So by the time the person arrives at the debt advice office saying, help, I owe X amount of money, the debt advisor goes through his uh, sort of finances, expenditure, income, outgoings, etc., but finds that this debt has already been transferred three or four times. So in a strangely kind of a distorted version of what happened in the U.S. housing market a few years ago, it's almost like being repackaged and sold on, and it's all smoke and mirrors. Nobody can really tell what the situation is. Nevertheless, this particular advisor sort of set great store by his ability to sort of negotiate with various um, creditors, so had managed to do so and ultimately was able to um, help this person through her problems. So just to conclude, um, what I'm really trying to say here in, in this particular talk is that even though if you see perhaps the work of these kinds of advisors as a, a kind of a sticking plaster, they're forever having to try and source funding here and there, um, it's never very easy to do, and what they can do seems to be very piecemeal and very patchwork and possibly a bit more like sticking plaster than we would like, I would like to take seriously the argument that Laura makes in her book, which is that if you take this from a social calculus point of view, if you think of these people as doing kind of ethical work, um, even if it's in very tiny little cracks and, you know, in between all the, all the big fixes that you think about in life, they are, in fact, doing something extremely valuable, a sort of ethical work. And in a sense, they can't be seen as doing debt resistance, but they are definitely doing some kind of amelioration of the worst elements in which people find themselves as a result of these austerity regimes. Okay, and I'll leave it there. Uh, so, uh, thanks for those fascinating talks and thanks everyone for being here this evening. Um, we're lucky to have someone here from the debt advice sector itself, um, Carl, who works at Toynbee Hall in Tower Hamlets. Um, and we're going to talk back and forth over the next 15 minutes or so, so we're going to remain seated down here. Um, now, we normally see austerity as cutbacks in state spending on social welfare. That's the way that the word tends to be used in political discourse in the UK. Um, but let's follow Laura's argument uh, that she was making after the video that these cutbacks are just one part of a broader set of processes where states have injected capital into the banking system since the 1980s. If we do this, then debt advice becomes a revealing case study, a very revealing case study, in fact, for thinking about austerity, because it's the place where two sets of processes converge and often collide. Um, and uh, it's these two sets of processes that Carl and I are going to talk about now. Um, on the one hand, taking the kind of conventional under understanding of austerity, um, you've got cuts to the public funding of debt advice, if we take debt advice as a case, as a kind of social welfare. Um, intriguingly, what's happened with free public debt advice in the UK is that even though the money it gets from the state's general taxation has been cut back significantly, um, the debt advice sector now obtains the majority of its funding from the financial industry itself. Um, now, let's look at the broader set of processes that Laura was talking about earlier, um, where, the states have injected capital, where the states have injected capital into the banking system. Um, this has led to banks and other lenders speculating more and more in lending to ordinary people uh, what's known as consumer lending. 
And as Laura was saying earlier, this expansion of personal credit, which has taken place since the 1980s, um, has papered over a decline in the real value of wages. The key point that um, I want to make this evening in looking at these two sets of processes is that austerity is part of a broader set of political and economic processes that make it necessary for many people to rely on credit while also binding those organisations set up to help people deal with the debt problems that relying on credit causes, binding those uh, organisations to a foundational assumption that people borrow freely out of choice. So we have a bit of a, a, bit of a contradiction uh, taking place here. Um, so the first of the uh, two sets of issues that I want to look at um, is the more conventional understanding of austerity. So, um, Carl, maybe if you could say a little bit about how austerity cuts to debt advice in particular, to debt advice funding, um, have affected organisations such as Toynbee Hall. Yeah, OK. Well, it's a, it's a, the effect it's had is that it's a different set of organisations to whom debt advice agencies more generally are serviceable to in the sense that where we receive our funding from but uh, in, in terms of what the main effects is you can say that the general effect of reduction in funding has meant that we uh, are far more reliant on trying to find ways to deliver a service at a very very lower or, or, or a much reduced and lower cost which means that we're trying desperately to find ways of um, introducing the idea of online uh, debt advice and remote debt advice, but also to try and stop people from returning towards uh, debt advice agencies. So, I mean, one of the real pain points for the sector as a whole is to ensure that once we have delivered an offer of debt advice, that that person is equipped and we can impart the sort of knowledge and, uh, and guidance that will allow them to be able to, in another period of financial crisis, personal financial crisis, deal with it essentially themselves, which is a problem because, well, it's two problems really, we have to then change the structure of what that advice looks like to include a financial capability element, which might sound very simple, but it's been a conversation we've been having internally uh, for a long time, and no less, you know, a lot of what we've heard previously is that there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of rules and regulations around guidance, but a lot of it has to do with the autonomy of the advisors themselves. So it would be wrong to suggest, for example, that there isn't a financial capability element in this and being able to empower people in it already. What we're trying to do is formalise that. And that's become, a, that's become an issue because that changes the structure of the advice and the relationship between an advisor and their client. Uh, I think part of the problem also is that the environment in which that client faces or, or is situated within is constantly threatening their, uh, their way of life. So the austerity, fits, the austerity narrative here is more than just how it affects uh, debt advice, but it affects the client of debt advice to the degree where advice is becoming more and more redundant, unfortunately. Um, so the, the advice that's given might uh, run into some problems uh, because of the situations that people find themselves in. Um, that would be, that, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, you mentioned that there have been 
higher, case, higher caseload targets within a lot of debt advice organisations. And that's something that um, I found speaking to other debt advice organisations as well, that um, uh, debt advice organisations that have survived austerity cuts have found themselves tasked with higher caseload targets. Um, and so there's uh, an emphasis on kind of absorbing uh, the impact of funding cuts elsewhere. Um, and it's interesting you say that that's gone alongside um, a financial capability aspect, i.e. trying to equip people with the skills that might prevent them from falling into debt problems again. Mm. Um, another thing, just in terms of this question of um, austerity cuts applied to uh, debt advice funding, and maybe we can move on to the point about how it's affected clients and uh, economic situations mm. in, a, in a moment. Um, but in terms of the funding cuts, something that's quite intriguing um, with austerity as being applied to the debt advice sector is that debt advice wasn't subject to quite such um, uh, harsh austerity cuts as other areas of social welfare. Um, and this is partly a virtue of um, a reliance that the, debt advice sec the free debt advice sector had since the early 1990s of deriving funds from the financial industry itself. Um, another thing, just moving on to um, the impact that uh, austerity cuts can have and these organisations having to soak up uh, those clients that have been left behind. Um, some debt advisors I've spoken to, and I don't know whether this resonates um, with those you work with, uh, have said that the higher targets mean that they're rushed and sometimes unable to take time to deal with those clients who have perhaps more complex needs or um, uh, their financial difficulties are more extreme one way or another. Mm. Um, uh, in terms of complex needs, it, it, what we were what we'd heard about um, the being able to deal with a, a person's case very, very sort of focusedly and, and, and on someone who's, who's experiencing very, very complex problems. That certainly resonates. I want to come back to this idea of caseloads. Mm -hmm. What this doesn't... What, what the idea of having a focused or a particular number of caseloads in a year or as part of the funding that we get from um, institutions with whom you know, they're getting it from financial services... Mm. Uh, what that doesn't help us to do is to see a, that number of people. What we do is we have that many cases. That many cases can include the same number of people, you know, the same person returning. I think the real sticking point for us is to be able, and when I say us, by the way, I mean the, the, the sector is, itself as a whole, is to be able to deliver something that is meaningful and long-lasting and equipping someone with... Uh, the knowledge and resources themselves to to help be resistant to the pressures that we feel everyday life uh, everyday life as a consequence of many things financialization austerity etc cetera, etc cetera. but we're up against we're up against it because of those pressures well maybe we could talk a bit more about those things now so um, we've spoken a bit about how austerity cuts can impact on debt advice organizations ability to secure funding um, but also, um, maybe let's speak, about, about, speak a bit about some of the economic changes that are affecting clients' economic circumstances, um, perhaps in terms of the levels of debt in society, um, increases in income insecurity, um, and also cuts to welfare. So how have those three kind of economic mm. changes affected uh, 
debt advisor's ability to, to give yeah, debt yeah, advice yeah. in a meaningful way. Well, I'll, I'll sort of illustrate this by way of an example. I was doing an evaluation of a money line service that they had in Brighton and Hove, and I was speaking to some of the education partners, so it was differentiated between debt advice partners and education partners. And what, they, what this service wanted to do was combine the two, because at times they felt rather isolated from each other, whereas they could learn from each other and also signpost one service to another from a particular client. And when I was speaking to the education providers there, uh, they, so they told me in very stark terms, what do I tell someone who has cut down on everything that they currently spend on for necessities and essentials? Now, the sort of rules that they are governed by at the moment say you do X, Y, and Z to determine what that person, that individual, can start to cut down to reduce their problematic, or, uh, problematic financial circumstances. We recognise that there is an environment that works against them, sure, but realistically all we can do in our allotted time is to help them to have a look at their financial situation and, and see what they can cut down on here in order to uh, prioritise um, on essentials for them. But that person told me, I mean, what do I tell someone who has already done that? We're treating people as though they are stupid and they don't know their priorities and their non-priority spending. What do I tell someone who has stopped spending on bills? It isn't the case of heat or heat anymore, and they're not doing either. They're making sure their kids stay alive. What do I tell someone like that? To which my answer was, yeah, you're right, I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really feel like the pressures in which we sort of, we're, we're realising today are... There's no solution by way of debt advice for that, but debt advice does play a part in being able to um, negotiate on behalf of people. But the external pressures that people face are so much that I, I worry what part we play. You know, I, I, I guess that's an open question. I don't know essentially what part we play in someone who, whose life is so chaotic, caused by external factors, that we, we don't have a one one single solution for that. Mm -hmm. Anyone who thinks there's a solution for that is, is lying. So um, Negative, I know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it sounds then like some of the kind of tried and tested remedies that debt advisors have conventionally used, a lot of which, um, thanks, um, a lot of which um, revolves around uh, economising in various ways or it might be going down a path of insolvency that those measures and remedies are running into problems now with arising people who are struggling simply to meet essential expenditures. Mm. Um, maybe just to wrap up, we could um, uh, talk about possible solutions to this and alternatives. Um, and um, I know we've spoken about uh, debt cancellation and debt refusal as uh, possibilities before. Um, could you say a little bit mm. about that? Um, well, yeah, I can. Um, debt cancellation is something that will likely be... I mean, if it was a conversation that we had in the same way that Croatia had a debt cancellation programme, Australia with its housing, with the mortgage market, had a conversation about what debt cancellation would look like, it would probably be government-led, i.e. we would have to convince the government that it's a good idea to keep people solvent in order to 
I don't know, I mean, to, to make it more palatable to this government, you could say that people who are insolvent or people who don't have any money at the end of the month aren't spending and contributing to the consumer-led growth society in which we live. <laughs> you could try and sell it like that. Um, in terms of what would be a socially good argument, I mean, I, I think we can probably, in this room, think of what the social good argument to stop people from being insolvent is. But I don't know to what degree that is publicly palatable for government, but also I don't know how palatable that is to the wider public as well, because, of course, people are very loyal and people are also uh, generally rule-abiding and don't want to break consumer credit rules, for yeah. example. So the idea of not being able to pay down one's debt might not be as publicly popular as we might in this room hope it is. Mm. I, I think it's a really interesting proposition because it poses some quite um, s stiff challenges to the very widespread notion that if a debt is legally valid, then it's also morally binding. Um, we might start to think, are there any exceptions to that very widespread rule? And, and that counts at the level of international debt as well as the level of household debt. Um, and just to finish... Um, I think it might be worth noting that um, debt non-payment and debt cancellation are happening all the time already. Um, in terms of debt cancellation, we have an insolvency system. Uh, the only thing is we might have questions about how good that is as a mechanism for debt cancellation, um, given that it's based on an assumption that when someone defaults on a debt, there's a depositor who's lost money, when in fact that's not the case, that's not how lending works. Um, and also with debt refusal, um, one can tell that this is happening all the time already because the consumer credit industry routinely gives up on collecting what it calls non-performing accounts, i.e. debts where the uh, customer just isn't coughing up, um, that they would make a kind of cost-benefit analysis of the value of putting effort into trying to recoup those costs. So uh, I would just finish on, on a note that I don't think it's the principle of debt cancellation that's at stake here, but rather society's view about the valid grounds on which debt cancellation might legitimately take place. Um, and it would be great to maybe discuss that um, when we have time for Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot to all the contributors this far, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. It's great to um, yeah, have these conversations happening. I'll be speaking about um, how the group that I'm from, Debt Resistance UK, came about, just briefly, why we felt the need for debt resistance, and then mainly on what we do, which is a citizen's debt audit in local authorities around the UK. Um, our aim really is to highlight and challenge the role of debt in upholding the current power structures that we see lead to such high levels of inequality in societies. We very much think that there are debts that are illegitimate and should not be paid, and that is a structural and systemic issue and not just down to individual local authorities, individuals or countries um, having acted irresponsibly. We, um, a lot of us have background in the Occupy movement and sort of post that disappearing from the public consciousness, we felt it was important not to lose focus 
um, on the financial system, even though a lot of kind of activism and campaigning may be shifted more towards the impacts of the cuts, and rightly so, because they have been very severe. We, we, want, we wanted to keep uh, focusing on that kind of root cause as we saw it. So we looked at debt movements elsewhere, such as the Debt Collective in the US that has done great work on student debt organising, but the situation in the UK is at least still now different enough that we didn't quite find that as the right thing to do here. We also have some links to movements around Europe, especially in southern Europe, in the crisis countries, where there have been debt audits happening. And I always feel it's really important to note that those movements stand on the shoulders of decades of movements in the global south, where um, there have been really strong movements towards organising for non-payment of debts that are illegitimate, um, which I probably don't really need to go into that um, much in detail because Laura very much alluded to that already. Um, But with all this thinking, we then came across the local authority level and we started investigating um, local authorities across England, Scotland and Wales that had been taking out loans called Lobo Loans from private banks, even though um, local authorities can always borrow from central government, uh, and that is always the cheapest long-term borrowing option for them. But why they've gone to private banks instead, I'll come to a bit later. We found through freedom of information requests that over 240 councils across the country had taken out logos, which are a sort of variable rate loan um, in a way beneficial in a moment where it makes sense to hedge against interest rates rising but obviously now that they're very low um, many councils that took out these loans have been in great trouble but that's not the only reason these loans were structured from the onset to be a kind of lose-lose bet their logo stands for lender option, borrower option which might lead you to think that these options are somehow somehow equal. (laughs) However, that's not quite the case. The lender's option is to change the interest rate on any pre-agreed period, which can be six months, can be two years, and the option the borrower then has, as in the council, is to accept that new interest rate or repay the loan in full on spot. They often have as little as 24 hours to make the decision and these loans are up to £50 million, as we all know local authorities are struggling at the moment. Um, Yeah, that's probably a point that is worth emphasising. The cuts to local authority funding have been really severe, um, over 20% since 2010. There There have been very extreme levels of cuts in local authority and there's even threat of bankruptcy at the moment. Several um, councils have been making noises that they might not be able to meet their obligations to their residents. Um, so why would councils have taken out these local loans instead? Well, partly answer is that they often came with teaser rates, so in kind of short-term political horizons they might have been a lucrative options, option, but we have also found quite significant conflict of interest 
in the advice that councils were given, which I think is definitely worth mentioning because so much of um, the power of debt and finance kind of has to do with this complicacy and the very technical language and the detail um, that is sort of made to made to kind of yeah make these um, issues sound very complicated. So there are some very extreme cases like the East London Borough of Newham that at the moment spends an equivalent of 80% of its council tax income on just interest payments or debt repayments on banks. Um, And that leads me to the citizen debt audit that we're doing. Because the starting point for that is definitely that debt is a political issue. Um, Because, as we've heard from others on the panel, terms of credit are clearly determined by political decisions or political events in the kind of wider world. And it's not a technical relation where data and credits are enter as equals or voluntarily even in many cases. But it's still quite difficult to counter that narrative of debt being something more than just that technical relation. So we found that the way to tackle that and start asking these political questions is precisely to start demanding more detail and start asking questions. How, well, where is debt accumulated? By whom? Who made the decisions? Who advised on the decisions to take out these loans in the case of global loans? And who benefited from spending of this borrowed money? Because, for example, in many cases, um, we've found that despite councils struggling so much to fulfill their obligations when it comes to social care, housing, public services, um, payments, repayments to banks are actually ring-fenced. Um, I just want to sort of note a few international examples of debt audits because, like I said, I think it's really important to say that this isn't something we came up with. Um, possibly the most um, high-profile example is the Greek um, Truth Committee on Public Debt that launched a report in 2015 announcing that because most of the bailout had gone to the financial sector and not benefited the people, um, it's deemed a lot of the country's debt illegal, illegitimate and odious. But as we know, political events happened in such a way that that report wasn't really used to refuse um, the debt. Ecuador was a bit more successful in 2008 as a result of uh, debt audit, they defaulted on 3.2 billion US dollars worth of loans to international creditors and used the money for social spending instead. And also on local level, um, across Spain, there's some great initiatives for uh, auditing, um, auditing council's debts. For instance, Madrid, which is the capital and the biggest and most indebted city, is quite far with um, uh, designing a sort of participatory process for a debt audit, so be, which, which goes beyond the technical, um, looking at just the exact details of yeah, where the loans have come from, but also has this participatory element of um, exploring 
what the citizens and what the residents actually think of the debt being illegitimate or, um, say, having local neighbourhood assemblies or assemblies around um, special topics of the debt, such as gender or environment. And the social movements, they are very much advocating a referendum on the possible um, non-payment of the debt to get that participatory element, because I can't emphasise enough that um, to break that power relationship that comes from debt and finance being such technical issues, it's really important to engage people and engage the public and use our democratic rights, which brings me to just very briefly the um, final point of what we have concretely been doing in the UK. We've um, worked together with residents and councillors across many local authorities to contest local loans and supported objections that residents can file under the Audit Commission Act that enables um, residents to object to a spending item they deem to be irrational. We've supported residents in 18 councils, originally 24, but only 18 are active at the moment, to request either a public interest report or a High Court ruling on um, the legality of global loans. So the transparency and questioning the legality of the loans are really the first steps. But like I say, we need to go beyond the technical audit, which is why all of our um, data is open and available for anybody, and we work with, with, um, with, with many existing groups. And the tools we really have been using are existing democratic rights that everybody in this country has, such as the Freedom of Information Act that has enabled us to get our hands on all this data, and the Audit Commission Act, which allows anybody anywhere to inspect their council's accounts, even though it is only um, during a very brief window in the summer that isn't publicised at all. But at least in theory, those rights are still there, and that's why, yeah, that, that's a big part of this work also, to reclaim those democratic rights and democratic institutions that we have, and yeah, kind of take them maybe, maybe away from the financial sector a little bit and bring them back to the people. Thank you very Great. much. Great. Thank you. Uh, a very positive and optimistic note of hope to end on. Thank you for these brilliant presentations going across different scales and different sites. And uh, while you gather your thoughts, I want to open up the floor for questions, but while you gather your thoughts, if any of the panel have burning questions for each other, I invite you to pose them, or if you want to have a discussion on any particular issue. Yeah. Oh, this is yeah. Awesome I, are you... No, rather take Yeah, to okay. Well, would you mind just telling us your name and your affiliation? There's a roving mic going round, which. Uh, uh, my name is Stephen, and I am a volunteer at the Citizens Advice, so uh, thank you very much. Um, um, Professor James for uh, recognizing uh, the work that is being done. Um, we, we, we see at the personal level of debt um, that there's, a, there's really a triple whammy 
to those who um, are uh, uh, in, in poverty. Um, we have the benefits cap, which has been reduced recently, and, and we're seeing um, clients that have two children and that they're hit by the benefits cap. There's the under-occupancy charge um, for social housing, um, and some people simply can't move out of the, of the properties they, because there aren't enough properties of the correct sizes, so there's a problem with the housing uh, stock. Um, and um, there's also, of course, the freezing of benefits um, from uh, the welfare reforms. Um, over recent years. All these things um, add to um, keeping people in the mire. Now, um, the, the other costs um, which are, are not seen, and perhaps the costs which should be brought to the attention of the government more to ease the funding uh, problems for um, um, debt advice organisations, is that there is enormous health costs. Um, there is... Um, the family breakdowns that come with debt. Um, these really you know, need to be um, um, put into, into, into figures, uh, into cost. Um, so it really can be a cost-benefit analysis as what is doing and, and whether the, ro the route being taken um, with reducing the, uh, the benefits is, is giving the wrong um, answers, just creating more cost. Um, the one thing which I, I, I would say um, to Carl, uh, well, well, a question really to Carl, is uh, consideration on financial literacy, which you, you did mention this element of um, helping people with the uh, capacity and capability to deal with their own debts. Uh, but I feel that uh, as one of my areas is um, to provide financial literacy, but I find it very, very difficult, as I think you do to get the message across, but um, perhaps a national campaign for financial literacy um, would be uh, an, an issue which the, the panel may think worthwhile. Thank you. So can I take a few more questions from the floor before we open the, um, the answer session to, for the panel? Yeah, over there in the back, please. Um, my name is uh, Peter Sutton. I work for a debt charity called Step Change Debt Charity, and I've been doing um, policy work on debt for about the last almost 15 years. Um, I, there's a lot of things there. Quite a lot was said, and quite a lot I agree with, and a few things that I don't agree with. Um, um, some factual, some sort of policy. Um, one of the things that I don't agree with is the idea that we can't do debt resistance. Um, actually, charities have been quite successful in our policy campaigning to get change. Um, but, but one of the problems we have is we're quite successful at getting change, which you could call on a kind of technocratic level. So it's, re it's, well, it's very hard to persuade government, um, but we are able to persuade government that there are problems which are kind of technical failings in the system that create social hardship. So we can do that. So credit regulation is a good example. Credit act regulation happened better credit regulation because we argued for it to happen. Um, various other things will happen um, to do with things like debt relief as well because we argue for it to happen. Um, 
what we're very unsuccessful in arguing is what underlies all your analysis at the end of the day is questions about distribution. And the financialization that you talk about is really about um, a change in the way that distribution happens in the economy and widening inequality and it more difficult for people at the lower end of the income spectrum in particular to get a sort of to make ends meet. And that seems to be taboo in the way in the policy discussions, even around kind of, you know, we talk about poverty and all these things. This idea of distribution is, in connection to debt, is off the political radar. So I guess after that, that long rant, the question is, you know, how do we get it on the, the political radar? Because that's the fundamental issue. But it's the one thing that is almost impossible for oh, us to address. Big questions. Uh, any more questions from the floor? Right at the back over there, please. Thanks. Uh, thank you for some very wonderful presentations. My name is Muntasir. I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist, unemployed, looking for work. Thus, I have no affiliation. Uh, my question is this. Maybe because of my training, I've, uh, while I've appreciated the presentations, I find the conversation a little bit one-sided. I'm interested in the conditions and factors, the pressures that are making people like me fall into debt. I understand the structural conditions. I understand the larger sort of uh, things that are shaping uh, people like me. But I want to understand the ethnographic, the fine-tuned, nuanced sort of analysis of what's really going on, what's pushing me and us. Sorry. Thank you. Any more questions from the floor? We'll take one more before we come back to the panel. Yeah, hi, um, Toby Chambers. Uh, I got my PPI um, payment back the other day, and it was um, 8% simple interest. But actually, if I go back in history, back many years ago, it was a lot more. It was probably about 40 50% um, interest I was being charged on, the, um, on that. So there's still a mismatch between, okay, it's good to get something back, but actually there's still a, a huge gap um, between what was actually paid out in the first instance and what the kind of the debt racked up to. If, you know, I had about five grand worth of debt originally and I got about three grand back. Um, and so there's still, and I, I think across the board, swathes of people are still actually, if they looked at it carefully, they haven't been totally compensated. Thank you. Um, so I'll come back to the panel. If you could take no more than a minute each to respond to whatever you would like off those um, questions. Laura, to you first. Yes, um, thank you very much for your questions. Um, I think behind several of the questions, especially for the, from the people who have experience in, in debt advice, was really a question about how we make technocratic forms more radical, how we might make financial education more radical, how we might make the technocratic challenges to the system as it exists more, more radical. And I think this is a really, really provocative question. Um, I think, and I think actually people who are working in care and debt advice are in a really interesting position to really explore that because, you know, as several of the presentations have talked about, you really are at the kind of coalface of the reality of the ethnographic and human reality of all of this. Um, so I think it would be really interesting maybe to, I, I don't know if debt advisors have a union. Do you have a union? Um, could you, because you're volunteers. But I mean, if you think about how to scale up 
your sense of care for these individuals and your deep knowledge of them um, and to sort of end maybe the individualization or different segregation of different organizations, it might be interesting to think about creating a kind of um, lobbying body amongst yourselves because you have such, such knowledge and you also have the abilities to speak technocratically, right, which I'm not sure that, I could, that any of us can do. Yes, yes. Um, but, it, I mean, it would be good to see your voices amplified much more. Um, and I think because you can tell that human story, it is, it is possible to do that. And I think, you know, when you talked about financial education, um, that could actually be quite radical um, because it, you could really give people kind of financial literacy, not just about their particular circumstances and how they're taking out loans, and you may be doing this already, but you know, how these, these whole structures are forming around them as well. Um, and I know that, for example, the Jubilee Debt Campaign has been involved in grassroots organizations who have been providing that kind of more radical financial education to groups in places like Leeds. So there are, I think there are lots of dispersed efforts and lots of dispersed knowledge, and I suppose all of our hope is here that by having events like this and you know, having these conversations with you, that these can be amplified in some way. Financial education should start at school. That's the comment from the floor. Thank you. Deborah? Yeah, I'm, I must say that in the course of my listening into some of these debt advice sessions, I feel as if I myself have been acquiring very valuable <laughs> debt advice. So it's, I can definitely feel it as if what I've been observing is people sitting in offices kind of having these conversations, which only a very small number of people hear. And I feel like somehow if, if something could be done to make those slightly more public, and, and because all of you do such extraordinarily valuable work, and, and right down to the point, I, I agree with the point that you make, which is that if we had some sort of cost-benefit analysis about the fact that austerity may actually have cost more than it you know, is, is in fact so, so-called saving. Um, but again, that slightly goes the route of, yes, let's measure everything in economic terms, whereas I'm trying to argue maybe with Laura that we need to also measure things in social terms. But it's obviously very difficult when, when people are up against um, the wall. The, the final point I'll just make is about this um, the question, you know, why are people getting into debt in the first place? And I found that there's a huge range of different points to this, although I think the underlying thing that you've just mentioned was really at the base of it all. But often it, it is the case that somebody arrives with debt and actually it's simply the tip of the iceberg. It's a whole set of other things have actually happened and gone wrong. And this eventually leads to this debt problem. So to some degree, saying it's debt is reductive. It's often much more complex than that, mm. but it, it only shows up as a sort of mm. diagnosis, manifestation of, of death. Carl? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad to be on the stage with Fanny because Fanny's really positive and I'm dreadfully, dreadfully, <laughs> dreadfully negative. I'm sorry, uh, but the, I, uh, this, this idea of, of there being a cost-benefit analysis if we factor in health costs, I do. I, I completely agree. I think there are cost-benefit analysis to wiping some debt, debt right down. I mean, I was very, very in favour of when the, uh, the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, was in the business of writing off debts from uh, debtors of payday lending firms, for example. I mean, Wonga was a big case, but there are other companies that you might not have heard of in the room. Cash Genie, Money Shop, there was a lot of payday lenders who had to redress, had a series of redress for people and that is a form of debt write down so I think that there is I mean whether you factor in health or not a great public interest 
public interest for a course of debt write-down on the basis, A, that you stop or you or are having that sort of odious debt, because it is odious debt, odious household debt. By having that level of odious debt, you do inhibit people from leading very normal lives and being financially resilient, uh, but you're also allowing socially unjust practices to go uh, unjudged, really. But unfortunately, I, I kind of think that that feeds into a point that you made about financial education. Now, I'm not obviously against financial education. I just think that if we're trying to look for solutions, financial education is a part of a decent civil society, but that shouldn't stop us from, that shouldn't stop us from having a series of redress measures for companies who essentially it looks like are trying to do everything they can to counter any financial resilience or financial capability strategies, I know that's technocratic terms, being resilient enough to be able to withstand the pressures of particular organisations or industries in this society. You know, I don't... I, I, it's, a, it's a solution. It's an, it's, a, it's an address to a question that needs an answer. But let's not put that... Let's not make that stick in the way of, of the root causes. Uh, I just want to also say sorry to Peter. I was dreadfully negative. Peter, Peter's very positive as well. Uh, of course, um, organized, I'm sorry, I'll speed up. Charities like Peter's and my own are, do a great deal of work. We do a great deal of advocacy. We deal with a lot of uh, pressures that, are, that people face that are caused by external realities. We do so. Um, my, my negativity was coming across because at the level of crisis, which I think is where debt advice is whether we like it or not situated we, we deal with people who are at crisis levels that's where I'm particularly worried that we're not doing enough but I don't see us as the fault of that you can probably guess where I do see the fault of that line but anyway I'll carry on. yeah uh, thanks um, yeah I find this question about um, how distribution uh, can be a taboo word in kind of policy circles quite interesting um, because I think the um, disappearance of the uh, of concepts of distribution from notions of social welfare is very much tied into this set of processes that we've been discussing uh, today um, with a shift uh, in the role assumed by the state towards society that the provisions that states make towards society is kind of ch diverted or channeled through the banking system. Um, and it, it seems that what's taken place is quite a subtle uh, redefinition of what gets redistributed in society. Instead of resources, um, it's opportunities to speculate. So um, we'll, there's a discourse of financial inclusion in the UK um, that involves trying to... Um, embrace the entire population into financial systems so that everyone has the chance to speculate and thereby improve their um, economic position. Um, but I think when... I think this is a very limited notion of redistribution. When, when what you're distributing through society is opportunities to speculate, then what goes hand-in-hand hand with that is uh, the risks that people take on as well. 
I also wanted to comment on that financial literacy point, which seems a popular point to come back to, because, yes, I'm definitely all up for more education of yeah, spreading the understanding of these issues, but the way I see it more is that we should be reducing the sort of grip that finance and financialization has of our lives, and we should be reducing the complexity of all these different debt conditions that people get into, institutions get into. For example, as I was sort of referring to in in my contribution was that local authorities often had very little understanding of what they were actually getting into when they signed these contracts for low loans. They're contracts of, you know, 50 million pounds and they're often just a page or two long. Local councillors don't have the financial understanding that is required for these kind of things. That's why they hire external treasury management advisors. If those treasury management advisors then happen to be subsidiaries of the companies that are brokering these loans and earning massive fees, how are they supposed to know and how are they supposed to stand up to that? It's, there's, there's so much yeah, power and really kind of very concentrated power in the financial sector. And I think just the idea of yeah, us having more understanding and thereby being able to kind of stand up against those dynamics is... It's very optimistic. I think we need to go a lot further and kind of, yeah, demand those sort of structural changes. Also, recognising, I did want to bring into that conversation also, um, not so much on local authority <laughs> level, but on, on, on a kind of different level of debt, that we have been talking a lot about the sort of exploitative dimension of debt, but it also does have um, a very important sort of oppressive dimension, because... I don't know if it's somewhat of a cliché by now to be using the US subprime mortgage crisis as an example when you talk about debt, but um, over half of the people who were sold subprime mortgages would have actually um, qualified for just normal mortgages, but they were very aggressively targeted because they were women or ethnic minorities. Now, I don't work with individual debtors. I don't know to what extent those dynamics are sort of widespread, but I would be surprised if that was the only context in which it has been happening, and I think we also do need to talk about yeah, structural issues on yeah, all these levels. Mm, thank you. Um, I'd like to open the floor to a couple more questions. I'm not sure we're going to get a chance to respond to all of them, um, but I'd like to abuse my position as a chair and ask a question to the anthropologists, if you, if you don't mind. And I'd like to take up from the question the gentleman at the, at the back over there asked. Um, I found this a fascinating panel, you know, bringing together uh, us as anthropologists uh, in conversation with debt activists, people who are working on the front line. I found the questions from the floor fascinating as well as the responses. But what I wanted to ask um, is, you know, to the anthropologists, is should we all, like, just become debt activists? Um, what is... Uh, what, what, what is specific about the research that you have done and what it contributes uh, to the wider discussions that we're having? And I ask this because, you know, traditionally we work, we, we do long-term ethnographic field research um, 
Uh, and, and you know, we, we pride ourselves on, 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 on finding out new forms of knowledge that perhaps, you know, other people didn't or didn't exist. And, and it's because of the methods that we use that, that we're able to say the things we can. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to ask, you know, maybe you don't have answers to these questions just yet. I appreciate you're in the middle of your research and are just newly finished. Um, but what, what, what are the specific things that we as anthropologists are contributing to these discussions on, 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 on debt um, and uh, debt advice? Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, yeah, over there, lady over there in grey. Just here. Thank you. Yeah. If you could keep your question very brief, please. Thank you. I don't know. I will be brief. <laughs> my name is Andrea. I used to be project manager in a regional government in my country, in Slovakia. And, uh, well, I had a few kind of remarks on what you keep saying. Um, first of all, this financial education, I fully, uh, I fully agree that it should, financial education should start at least at secondary schools, but as a part of kind of like life skills, because there is a lot more that needs to be considered that uh, age, teenagers should be prepared for life, not just financial education. And also, uh, I think that media should play a much bigger role in education kind of life skills, whether it's like healthcare or financial skills, or many, many, many other issues uh, for life because there is too much brainwash in media, uh, even BBC, where you have been games and shows and so-called talent shows. This culture must change its public money anyway. Thank you. Could you to, ask your question, please? Uh, well, I rather make comments. Okay. I would like to comment on something. When I work in regional government in Slovakia from 2003 to 2010, uh, I was working with European funds, with European projects, and uh, it was very mismanaged and even corrupt, and so on and so on. I designed game theory back to 2005. I kept bombarding the British Parliament, and I still keep doing it. And the biggest problem, because debt and austerity, this is a fraction of the system, cha system problem, and now everybody talks system game changer, blah, 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 whole media. I'm sick of it. Ten years ago, I designed game theory, and nobody, one single politician, ever spoken to me, or academician, or whoever, Thank from you. the Th top. That's, this that's, is the real problem. And, uh, that's very interesting. There are several other people who want to say something. So if you have a question, would you mind posing your it's question? It's not a question. There is a few more comments I would like I, to make. To I'm not allowed even to speak yeah. in this so-called democracy. Please, may we This is a problem of real current time. The lady over there, thank you. Hi, um, my name's Catherine. I'm an anthropology student here doing a master's at the LSE. Um, my question is in light of the fact that in our society today to do higher education, young people are encouraged to take out huge debts, which they have to carry with them for the rest of their lives. And I was wondering if you guys had assessed the psychological effects of this um, and whether you think this is going to be a bigger problem in debt management for the future. So, thank you. Good. So we'll just take one more question uh, over there and, and, and at the back. And, um, yeah, thank 
Uh, yeah, how much of the, the, home, <clears throat> the home-owning public in Great Britain um, somehow complicit in, um, in, in, in driving levels of debt up and, and stopping younger generations uh, being successful uh, by voting for people like uh, uh, Blair and um, uh, uh, Cameron and Thatcher? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for your questions. I, I, I'm afraid, unless <laughs> you have a kind of burning things that any of you particularly would like to say right now, we have about a minute. I just wanted to say what I think the anthropologists can mm, contribute please, to, this, yes. to this conversation. Um, and thinking across my colleagues' work and my own work, what we do is we reveal these very, very hidden processes at work that we go completely beneath the surface of the usual kinds of stories about what's going on. You know, in India, I went beneath the surface of this idea that liberalization had produced prosperity in India. Um, and by that kind of long-term field work, I was able to get beyond some of these sort of spectacular representations of what, what had happened. And I think the same is really true, you know, in terms of Deborah um, and Ryan's work in relation to debt as well. So we really get to grips with, you know, what's happening, what's generating these realities for people. And then we scale up from that to ask really big questions. And for me, the really big question, I'm kind of with Fanny, is not just about financialization, but about what has happened to our states what has happened to them? They've become completely absorbed in forms of cost-benefit analysis at every single level. And fundamentally what we need to do politically, I think, and it's quite utopian, is reclaim our states as public commons, as institutions that ex should exist for our benefit. So. That's a really great note to end on. Thank you so much to all the panel and thank you.